Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. If you, if you have your, your Bibles with you or you have your idle, I mean, iPhone, you can turn, or tablet, you can turn, find it on uh, an app they use. Colossians, sorry. Sorry. Colossians 2. Um, Colossians, no shame. The, the best Bible is the one that you'll read, okay? But a paper one's better. Um, Colossians 2, we're, we're going we're gonna to finish chapter 2 in our series. We've been for 12 weeks. We're going through the, the letter to the Colossian church. Um, we are, we're about halfway through right now. We're, we're finishing up chapter 2. But before we uh, jump into the sermon, just want to do a, a few things. Uh, one is uh, just, you know, just take a second and, you know, we, we're, we're here together. Uh, we, we call this space that we're meeting in to worship and to gather Jesus the sanctuary because uh, historically it was called that because... Uh, it kind of played two roles. One, it was a reminder that, that the lives that we live in, in the world around us, whether in our homes, our communities, our jobs, our schools, uh, all of those things, uh, it's just a different world than when uh, God's people gather together and experience what Jesus said, where two or more are gathered in his name than, than he is there with us. And so, so as we gather in this space, we do it because we believe what Jesus has done for us, that, that he's who he is, that he did what he said he would do, and that he's going to come back and accomplish what he said he would accomplish. And so uh, one way that we remind ourselves of that reality is that uh, Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sins. And in and, First and John it says that if anyone confesses their sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So just as a way of kind of centering us and before we open his word, let's stand together and we're going to say a prayer of confession together. We've been doing this pretty consistently the last few months. So, so let's say this prayer of confession together. Most merciful God, I confess that I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what I have done and what I have left undone. I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbors as myself. I am truly sorry and humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me and forgive me, that I may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And as we're a people, before you sit down, sorry, got you real quick. Before you sit down, uh, I just want to take another moment just, just uh, as a group of people gathered under the name of Jesus today, just to take a moment to recognize the, the uh the horrific things going on over in the Middle East and in Israel and in Gaza and now starting to really affect northern Egypt and stuff like that. Uh, God's design was never for humans to live their life at the expense of other humans. Uh, and war is just one of the ways that we see that amplified and so many broken lives, hurting, death, pain. Now, of course, all kinds of humanitarian crisis with water, food, electricity being cut off and stuff. So let's just take a moment, just as people standing with our bodies, just to, as a way to say, Jesus, we are, we are here to recognize that this is not the way you created the world to work, and that one day you're going to come and make all wrong things right. But until then, we live in a broken world where things like this happen. Let's just take a moment just to pray and ask God to, to intervene in a mighty way, and then I'll close this in prayer. We'll sit down and jump into the message.
Heavenly Father, we know that your kingdom is a kingdom of peace and of righteousness where your presence and goodness and love infiltrates the earth. And God, we are excited about that day where that fully finally happens. But, but Father, now we live in that time where we, we've seen what's possible because of what Jesus has come and done and the power and the, the Holy Spirit that he's given us in faith. But God, the reality is that we still live in a broken world where there's pain and there are people trying to establish their own kingdoms on their own terms, and they don't want you in it. So, Father, we, we, we just, as a people here, probably most of us completely removed other than seeing the news from what's going on in the Middle East, God. We, we recognize um, the tragedy that that is, where human life needlessly and mercilessly taken um, to advance some kingdom uh, but Jesus, we ask that, that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us eyes to see where we can join you in the ways that you're working. We love you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat now. So we're in Colossians uh, chapter 2. And uh, last week we talked about two pillars. Uh, human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces that construct lies uh, that try to pull us away from centering our lives on Jesus uh, and living in the freedom that he offers. And so, so this week, uh, we're going to see, when I read the passage in a moment, that, that those pillars, you know, human wisdom or human traditions, elemental spiritual forces, they come back up but in a different context. And so, so last week we saw Paul kind of giving warning signs um, about those, those lies, and then we offered some truths to combat those. Uh, this week... Paul kind of continues his warnings uh, to really refute and go against the false teachings that, that were being taught to this young church. Um, and, he, and he asks a question in verse 20 that, that I, I want to kind of focus on, um, and I'm going to kind of rephrase for us. Uh, but, but before we do that, let me read the passage. So it's, it's Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. So let, let me read that for us. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Verse 20, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Rules like do not handle and do not taste and do not touch. These rules, which have, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based merely on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Sometimes you just got to appreciate 
Paul's intensity, right? The language he uses there is like language that none of us use anymore. But like I said, I want to look at verse 20 where he asks, since you died with Christ. So because everything is true, in, ver- in chapters 1 and 2 we've talked about the realities of who Jesus is and what he's done with us. So since we have died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do, su- do you submit to its rules? So the rephrase of that could be, since Jesus has set you free, why do you keep going back? You know, last week we talked about enslavers and those things that are trying to take us captive again. And Paul just kind of reiterates the question, like, why do we keep going back to things that keep us from living in the freedom that Jesus offers? Last week was a little more theoretical. We talked about some of those philosophies and things like that. But this week's much more practical. It's where kind of the rubber meets the road. Because Paul is addressing like actual things that they were doing that showed what they really actually believed and that were, that were things that bring you back into the bondage of those human traditions and sin. And so as we get into the message today, I, w- I want to just ask the question, what are some things in your life that are f- making you fall back into bondage of sin like what are the things that have you going back that you've already been set free from there could be multiple things that come to mind here maybe it's a habitual sin that you just can't shake maybe it's an addiction maybe it's pain or hurt or trauma that you're still carrying from the past Maybe it's a situation that you just can't make yourself forgive someone in. Maybe it's just a current situation of confusion or hurt that you find yourself in right now and it's overwhelming and it takes up every bit of mental, emotional, and spiritual capacity you have. If that's the case, let me say welcome. We're all humans. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have this treasure of God's spirit in our jars of clay where we feel the brokenness. And the prayer all week has been that God would be present here today and make his grace and love tangible to us. And while I can't hit all of those issues in one sermon, what I'm hoping to do is kind of narrow it down so that we can come alongside Paul in this letter that he wrote to this young church some 2,000 years ago And encourage us with this, that devoting our life to faithfulness to Jesus is really worth it. And it's hard work, but it's worth it. So Paul offers a few examples based on the context of the church in Colossae. What it looks like to fall back into into that bondage, uh, to leave the freedom that Christ has offered. And I think we can learn from those examples in our lives. And so here's what we're going to do. The sermon kind of set up for today is going to be a little different. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to set the scene for the passage. We're going to look at the context briefly. And then I'm going to offer three things that will kind of give us maybe pictures and analogies of how we can relate to the teaching that Paul's given. Okay, So, so we're going to look at a parable, a picture, and a promise. All right, A parable, a picture, and a promise. I think that these three things will help us take what Paul wrote to the Colossians and see how we can be aware of falling into those traps and, and come out following Jesus more closely. So, so here's the context for the passage. Uh, we've talked about kind of the false teachings that, that, that Paul was combating over the last few weeks. In, in verses 6 through 15, uh, Paul lays down baseline truth 
that combats those false teachings. So there were false teachings really that, that kind of fell in three categories. Uh, one of them was like a hyper-spirituality. So it was the idea that in order to really be considered faithful in Jesus or really to be considered a disciple of Jesus, you had to do like really hyper-spiritual things. So that's where he talked about like, you know, having visions, you know, doing like miraculous things and, and you know, probably like a lot of us in here, the, the, the majority of the people would think, man, I'm just trying to develop a prayer life, like much less like touch someone on the street and see them be healed. You know what I'm saying? Like, like that's what they, but that was one thing was hyper-spirituality. Another thing was the worship of angels. So because of kind of this like, like at the time there was this kind of new neo-Judaism, kind of new form of Judaism where they were looking at stories in the Old Testament where angels would show up, the angel of God would show up and do miraculous things. And so once Jesus came, they tried to say that Jesus was just another one of those angels that came and did something big. And they were trying to kind of move Jesus from this place of superiority in the faith to like level playing field with other heavenly beings. And so that was, a, that was one of the other false teachings. The third false teaching uh, was uh, this, this word that's called asceticism. Okay, so asceticism, uh, the idea of it is uh, kind of comes from like, like a few hundred years B.C., before Jesus came, there was a philosophy known as Gnosticism, which actually still is prevalent uh, in, a, in a lot of the world today. That's basically the idea that like anything physical is evil and anything spiritual is good. So like we need to do everything we can to escape the physical and become as spiritual as possible. And so that would form like really kind of odd... Uh, practices that they would do. Uh, anybody um, a recovering middle schooler and still love Monty Python? Anybody know the scene where the monks are walking around with, 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 woods, with wood and they would do a chant and they'd smack themselves in the head? So that was like asceticism at like its most extreme form is that monks would literally carry around like planks of wood and if they had a sinful thought they'd smack themselves in the head with the board. Okay, or maybe you're like people like carry around whips and if they felt like they were having like a, like a, a fleshly thought or desire in their body, they'd, they'd beat themselves with a whip until the, that desire goes away and they were able to focus on Jesus. I don't, like, I had a heart, like, so I grew up not in like a super intense culture. Uh, and so like even whenever my senior year of high school, I kicked for the football team, the football locker room was just an odd space for me. Everybody was happy, but they screamed and they smacked each other as hard as they could and you were on the same team. You know what I'm saying? I was like, this makes no sense to me. And that's what I feel like that kind of like, like upper level asceticism is, where, where it was that, that idea that like the body is bad, spirit is good, so let's just like destroy our bodies so we can become more spiritual. And we know that that's not the way God created us. We're whole beings. The way we treat our bodies has a very real way in the way that we are able to, to connect with Jesus spiritually. And so... So Paul lays down these truths, and now his argument kind of comes to a head against those false teachings. And he all but specifically names the people who are teaching them, which is a good reason why I don't think Paul knew who was teaching them, because we know the way he treated Peter, he's not afraid to call people out, right, in person, not afraid of confrontation. But the, those, th those three false teachings, what, the, what it was doing is it was leading people so there's what you believe, and then there's the way that belief affects the way you live your life. The way these false, teachers, these false teachings were leading people to live, were leading them to empty religious activity, empty discipleship, and a false vision for life. 
And so within that kind of the parable, the picture, and the promise, I want to see how those three things that Paul is warning against uh, comes and maybe how we can relate to that. So, so let's get the first thing, the parable. Okay, so here's a parable from the, from the early church, a few hundred years after Jesus ascended back into heaven. Uh, the, the Roman Empire was really afraid of the way Christianity was expanding, and so Christianity was, a, was like almost always, 90-something percent of the time, a persecuted faith. Constantine, uh, whether he had a real spiritual awakening or not, and he met Jesus, he realized that the, the Christians now had so much sway in the culture that if he actually promoted Christianity, that he could win enough votes to gain political power. And I'm just glad that doesn't happen anymore in the culture we live in. But the, so the, the Desert Fathers, uh, what they did, uh, they saw what happened where, where there was faithfulness to Jesus under persecution. And then within like a decade or two, they saw Christianity go from a persecuted religion to a preferred religion. And it actually became a part of you could gain social and cultural uh, elitism and acumen if you were a Christian. So what they did was they, they were seeing that happen where people were growing in wealth and power and stature politically and socially, economically, and then they were reading what Jesus was saying and they were like, this doesn't add up. And so it happens a lot of time when culture uh, changes quicker than we can keep up. We have an equally extreme reaction. So their reaction was, let's just go into the, let's sell everything we have give it to the poor, and go out into the desert where Jesus was for 40 days, and he came out, the son of, you know, the son of God, after being sent out to tempted by the desert, by, the, by Satan in the desert. And so the idea was, let's go out, let's remove ourselves from culture so that we can really become as Christ-like as possible. A lot to learn for us in modern-day America. But uh, as that happened, we know that monasteries popped up, communities started gathering together because you, at the end of the day, you have to eat, you got to drink water, you got to have food and shelter and things like that. And so in one of these communities, there was one of the Desert Fathers, his name was Silvanus. And, and Silvanus was, uh, he, he went and he lived in a, uh, like, a, like a military, uh, it was an abandoned military outpost tower. He lived there by himself for 20 years. And he fasted and prayed all the time. He wrote some crazy, crazy stuff. Uh, but then people started coming and seeking him because he had so much wisdom and he was known as a great teacher. He would preach like six-hour-long sermons and everybody would listen to it. Okay, so we're going to try that today to try to be like the heroes of our faith before us. So, so, so Silvanus is now leading this group of, of uh, these people who, have, who are trying to become Christ-like. They're trying to follow Jesus without being torn by the culture and the world around them. And this young man comes up to Abba Silvanus. So at this point, Silvanus is on Mount Sinai, and, and he's living a, a life of a monk, devoting himself fully to Jesus. And this young, this young, uh, this young monk, uh, he approaches Silvanus, and he, and he expresses concern about some of the other folks in the, in the community who are wasting their time doing something as dignified, as undignified and unnecessary and unspiritual as common labor. Okay, so, so basically household chores. He was looking at his friends around him trying to be like Jesus. And the young man, he quoted several scriptures to prove that true, discipleship, true disciples should pray and read scripture and not waste time on ordinary chores because he used the story of Mary and Martha where he said, hey, Jesus said that Mary had chosen the better part while Martha was, was doing the chores and preparing dinner. So Silvana said, that's a good point. 
He had someone come, take the young man to his room, where there was nothing that he could do but pray and read a scripture and have no distractions. And so a day goes by, nothing really happens. The next morning he wakes up, still hasn't heard from anyone. He thinks, okay, my plan's working. I haven't had to sweep, I haven't had to cook, I haven't had to do any kind of activity here. But then lunch comes by and he starts getting a little hungry. By evening of that second day, he he walks out and he finds uh, Abba Silvanus and he says, uh, hey, has everybody already eaten? You know, they're in a monastery, they're monks, who knows, he could have missed the announcement that they were going to do like a three-day fast or something like that. And Silvanus says, oh yeah, everybody's already eaten. The young man asked, why didn't anybody call me to eat? And Silvanus says, well, hey, you're a spiritual person and you don't need food, but we're earthly. And since we want to eat, we work with our hands. But remember, you have chosen the better part. Reading, praying all day, not wanting to take earthly food. Well, the young man, he was pierced to the heart and he repented. And Silvanus responded, I think Mary always needs Martha. And it was because of Martha's help that Mary is praised. So here's the thing. I'm all for like spiritual disciplines, spiritual activity. I'm all for that. Of prayer, fasting, serving others, serving in kids' ministry, serving with FSM, all of that, right? I mean, James lays it out well, right? He says, draw near to God and God will draw near to you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That speaks of intentional actions that we take to make our lives enter and be more aware of the presence of God, right? Tired of living in sin? Well, then resist it. Put intentional boundaries up and set goals that keep you from doing the works of the devil. Bring other people into that with you that can hold you accountable. But here's where things go awry. Just like for the young monk in the parable, things get a little wonky in our spiritual lives when we start to do them for anything other than connection with God. Right? As the young man looked around, he judged his brothers, or maybe he looked for an easy way out to not have to work. Maybe it was for praise. Maybe he wanted this great spiritual father to, to put him on his Instagram story, manipulating other self-righteousness, arrogance. Whatever it is, that is manipu- whenever the motivations change from doing things with Jesus to doing things for Jesus, we can start to feel that separation. I've never, in my time, Uh, 12 years of full-time pastoral ministry, I've never seen anyone get more religious than when a high school or college student gets broken up with because their girlfriend said Jesus told them to. Right? The motivation changes a little bit. And so what happens is the first warning that Paul gives us is when our motivations change, we swap intimacy for religious activity. While a lot of times doing things is a good thing, right? Dallas Willard said that grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. We play a role in our life as we come alongside Jesus, as we draw near to God and he draws near to us. But but look at verses 21 through 23. He goes on and he says, hey, you know, don't do this, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are merely based on human commands and teachings. Those regulations, they they seem to be good. They seem to be good, but the motivation is off because it's false humility, harsh treatment of the body, and they lack any value in actually keeping you from sin. See, religious activity, the motivations change, and you can kind of know that it's changed from nearness to God when, when, when it becomes a scorecard. 
What a scorecard does, a scorecard of I've done this, I've got this many points this week because I did these things, it, it actually turns into a weapon of shame, both inwardly and against other people. Because if you have something, if you think you've created concrete proof of I am holier than them because I've done these things, you're shaming the person around you, but also it becomes yourself because the scorecard, the, the count can never go high enough. It can never go high enough. Like, like just, to, just to remind ourselves, last week I, I gave the image of like on Monsters, Inc. on the scare floor where they have points for getting scares. Like what if we walked in and there's a rolling point system of everything we did this week for God? All of our religious activity, right? Like, like I asked the question last week. I'm going to ask it again this week. How many weeks would you have to show up and either see your name on the scoreboard or not see your name on the top ten before you quit coming to church? Right? Like, like if it's a scorecard, if the, if the motivation is not intimacy with God where you are becoming more aware of his presence and keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, but instead it becomes a way to say, hey, you know what, I'm actually not going to be around those people and I'm just going to come over here and do my own thing. And you end up insulating yourself because of your scorecard. Jesus gave that warning to, to the leaders in his day, right? I mean, just an absolutely scathing rebuke. In, in uh, Luke 11, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he says, Hey, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside also make the inside also? But, as, but, as, uh, but now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. And woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all kinds of garden herbs. So these guys were so serious about following God that not only would they tithe their money, but they would even count down the mints. Like how many of us like go to Aldi and you buy like some, some chili powder? It's chili season again, thank God. And you buy some chili powder, and you're like, all right, let me weigh this out. Got 120 grams, so how many, you know, 10% of that, I'll take that, and I'll give that to the poor. You know, I mean, that, that's how religious they were. You couldn't outdo them in religious activity. But it said, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter, justice and the love of God, without leaving the former undone. See, practicing the love of God. Isn't that a, like kind of a different concept? Like Jesus told us that you should have practiced the love of God first. See, there's no shame where there's perfect love. Religious activity can't free us from the flesh because it's enslaved by it. Whether it's seeking, admiration, fame, fortune, addicted to pleasure, religious activity becomes the end to itself. It becomes a way of shielding what's going on inside of you like the Pharisees were doing, because you're doing all the right things. Because if you've got enough points on your scorecard, nobody can point a finger at you, right? Like if you're doing enough stuff, enough of the right things, no one can hold. Anybody uh, on Netflix, there's a documentary about David Beckham. Anybody watch that yet? Okay, that's part of our discipleship journey this week. All of us get on there. So, we're gonna, so, so what's interesting is David Beckham started as this very humble guy, I mean, just an incredible soccer player from a young age. His, his, the coach of Manchester United saw that in him. He kind of mentors him, raises him in the club, everything. At 16 years old, he becomes you know, already one of the, like a starter on the team. By the time he's in his early 20s, he's known as one of the best soccer players in the world. But he hits his mid-20s, and he has this interesting turn uh, because at some point he, he knows 
that he's so good and he makes so much money that he doesn't have to listen to what a coach says anymore. See, his scorecard of the way he performed got high enough to where he knew no one could come and hold anything against him. So he started doing what he wanted to do. See, for us, for us, intimacy with God, being in his presence, isn't accomplished by doing stuff. It's accomplished by doing the things that increase our awareness and hunger for him in our lives. The things that increase our awareness and our hunger for him. So, that, so that's the first thing. We swap intimacy for religious activity. This, the second thing I'm going to use to try to see how, if we can relate here is by a picture. Can we throw that picture up? This is by Tim Noble and Sue Webster. Uh, they're sculpt, they're uh, sculpture artists from the Pacific Northwest, and uh, they did a whole art series on taking trash off of the street and creating sculptures from it. So if you look at the sculpture itself, it's literally just a pile of garbage, okay? And that's not me as a hillbilly, like, doing art critique. Like, it's actually literally what it is. But the interesting thing about it is that they would have these spotlights, and they would put them at the exact right angle, and the picture that would show from the, from the sculpture behind it was beautiful, right? So there's all kinds, of, they, they have all kinds of pictures, all kinds of, you can see, I mean, it's very clear. It looks like two, two people with their backs to each other there. And so I think what Paul's trying to warn us is, is that if you shine a light on it just right, the shadow makes a clear image, but it's too often that we settle for the shadow and we lose the substance. Look at verses 17 through 19. He, go, he writes, he says, these things, so, so the, you know, all of the stuff that, that you're putting as religious activity, they're a shadow of the things that are to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So, so don't let anyone who delights in false humility, the worship of angels, disqualify you. For, for such a person goes on into great detail about what they've seen, they, you know, what they've done, what they think. They've lost connection with the head with whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments, grows as God causes it to grow. What happened here is that the folks in Colossae had done, and, and they had gone all in on teaching, you know, experience, vision, dreams, all of that stuff. It, it's, it's all good things if they come from God. Right, but verse 19 happens, you lose connection with the head. They lose sight of being in God's presence and following his will, and they replace it with the idol of self. See, that's what false humility is, puffed up with idle notions of their spiritual mind. It's coming to God for therapeutic feelings and not, de- and not for devotion. It's coming to God saying, here's what I can bring you instead of what do you have for me today. And so you end up defining reality based on feelings and emotional experience and not on objective truth given by God. It's what happens when we swap discipleship for delusion. See, because here's the problem. We saw in verse 19, the one place that God, the omnipresent God who is everywhere on the earth, like Psalm 139 says, where could I go and escape God? I go down to the grave and he's there. I lie in my bed. I go here and he's there. He's everywhere. The one place that God is, is unable to live is in delusion, is in false reality. When we create illusions that try to create a reality that is not defined by God, we end up we end up swapping discipleship for those things. Discipleship is having a clear understanding of who God is based on his own terms. 
we don't get to create the terms of what it means to follow Jesus. We don't get to create the rules for what it means to be like God. Following Jesus, living with him, entering his presence is defined on his terms. And when we swap out the discipleship of how Jesus defines it for the ways that we define it, we talked about that a lot last week, that's where we start to lose sight of who Jesus really is and we can't relate to him anymore. We can't relate to him. It's like I can remember when I was a kid and my grandfather was getting close to his death, he started losing his memory. And it was almost at times like he was a different person than my grandpa that I knew growing up. And it was hard to go through, it was hard to watch my mom go through that. I can remember the last time that I went to see him before he passed away, he couldn't remember who I was at all. And it was odd knowing who he was and having the memory and relationship that I have, but then realizing that there was something in our relationship to where we just could never be what we once were. And that's what it's like whenever we swap discipleship for Jesus the way he defines it with trying to define discipleship on our own terms. That's why it's so important to develop a hunger to know God, a hunger for his word, a hunger for prayer and, and following him. It's why I pray for us as we get up on Sundays that God gives us such a taste of his goodness and reality that we lose an appetite for the things of the world. We can't let ourselves slip into empty religious activity, but we continue developing a hunger for and knowing God. John Owen puts it this way. He was, a, he was a Puritan theologian and pastor, and he wrote about, he called it the beautific vision. So the beautific vision, so this is a guy like, he is like doctrine first, his theology is unbelievable that he wrote, uh, and he, but he argued at the same time that learning to behold the glory of Jesus, so like structuring your life in a way and developing your spiritual hunger in such a way that, that you can be aware of the glory of Jesus. It's not just like a mental knowledge of doctrine and the right things, but it's through prayer and meditation on scripture and sitting in silence. The dude would sit in silence for like an hour every single day and just ask the question, God, what are you saying today? He would sit and he would allow God's glory and God's presence to saturate his imagination. And he argued that that's the only way you can grow as a Christian. All right, this is the John Owen. Like, if you've not read John Owen or are familiar with him, uh, like, his stuff's unbelievable. But he actually thought and taught that having an experience of God's presence through increasing awareness was vital to the Christian life. And so we have to develop that hunger. We have to develop a hunger for God more than the things of the world, which brings us to our last point, the promise. Okay, so, so in John chapter 6, Jesus is doing, you know, he just got done feeding 5,000 people. The disciples get on a boat and, and going across the water. Jesus walks on the water, gets in the boat with them, and then all of a sudden they're at the other shore. Okay, and then, and then they start asking Jesus, you know, all kinds of questions. He's teaching them, and he, and he says, like, hey, I'm the bread from heaven which has come to bring life. And then in verse 53, this is the promise. See if you can catch the promise here. John chapter 6, starting in verse 53, says, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, 
and I in them, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Okay, that can sound really odd, can't it? So, so, so when you read that, that can almost sound threatening. It can sound really weird and odd, like, Jesus, surely you didn't mean that, right? Or you can take it as a promise. We, we can take what Jesus said and we can say, okay, if I take in Jesus, if I'm developing a hunger and a thirst and a desire for Jesus to where I am seeking him so much that I'm filling myself with his life, then I can have life. I can experience life. Right? Jesus isn't offering life the way we want it. He's offering a life that's so filled with him that we can't help but be nourished by him, fed by him, where our desires and appetites are defined by him. And that's the problem with what Paul's writing towards. That All of this falls apart in verse 19. It says we're supposed to stay connected to the head. That word head in the Greek is kephale. It, it's, it's like basically saying the way like the head of a spring or the head of a fountain. It's not like an authoritative head picture, but it's a head that's like the origin of source of life and nourishment. So, so in ancient Greek, the word picture was the head is where you take in food that then nourishes the rest of the body. So, so as we structure and center our lives on the person of Jesus, who he actually is, then we ourselves can be made whole because we're living our lives the way God designed us to live. Being made whole, right? We saw last week at the beginning of chapter two, it says that all the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus. And so in him, we are made full. We're made whole. So the last warning, what happens is we swap what's real for what's easy. And those aren't always mutually exclusive, but we swap what's real for what's easy. That's what happened to the Colossians. They, they were given the clear picture of who Jesus is and everything he's done for them and all that he offers them, freedom, life, new creation, being made completely new, but they lost that vision for a vision clouded by false humility. By, by the idea that, that, that we can do enough to become completely full spiritual beings without Jesus worshiping uh, other spiritual beings as if they're on the same level field as Jesus. And the problem with that is that the input will determine the output. And, and, and that slip with swapping what's real for what's easy isn't always like an intentional thing. Like I doubt most of us are sitting around on a weeknight after a long day of work you know, and just life in general, and we're making out a pro-con list of like, okay, do I watch another hour of TikTok or do I read my Bible and pray? All right, let's write this out. What are the pro? You know what I'm saying? Like most of us aren't hopefully like literally weighing out what's better. And I'm not saying that like you should go move in the desert and sell everything and give it to the poor unless that's what God's calling you to do. But what I'm saying is like if we took inventory of our lives and it was a pie chart and, and the, the things... It was a pie chart that, that listed out a per percentage-wise of the things that you're putting into your mind from the TV shows we watch, the YouTube channels we subscribe to, the podcasts we listen to, the news channels we give our lives to, the soundtracks in, in our minds that we continue to let feed that define who we are and what we think about other people. Like, what would be the overwhelming color on the pie chart? Like, where would that space for developing a hunger for God fall 
Because what we feed our soul will develop our appetites and our desires. And and our appetites, our desires in life, the vision that we create will determine what we follow after. Like, like, uh, I was just thinking this morning, I was reading Psalm 77 where it talks about, he's like, man, Jesus, God, I, I can't even remember the last time you heard one of my prayers. Like, man, I was thinking about you, and, and I just started groaning in anguish. And, and, I, and I thought about going into your presence, and, and he literally is like, I was sick to myself. But then he goes on to say, but, but then I recalled all of the things that you have done. And he had de- the, the author of that psalm had developed an imagination. Because then he goes on to say, when I, when I remembered all the things that you've done, then I knew I could come to you and hear my prayer. You would redeem my life. You would heal me. You would give me life with you forever. Because the expectation that we have of what God's going to do, like we had expectations coming into church today, right? Like, like you expected to come to church and sit in the same seat you sit in every week, at least close, right? Like you had expectation that you, you know, maybe talk to a few people, that we'd sing a few songs, that we'd pray, that, you know, we'd hear somebody talk on stage with a microphone for a long time and we'd try hardest to stay awake. And then we'd maybe sing another song or two and go home and, and, and maybe go grab some lunch. Like we had an idea, but how many of us woke up this morning and expected to meet God here today? Like I believe that God wants to say something to me and I'm expecting him to do so based on what I know that he's done in the past and what I see from the testimony of Scripture. Like most of our imaginations have been so saturated with just the easy that we forget the reality that, man, the whole earth is God's and everything in it. Man, that God wills that none should perish but all should come to know him through repentance. Charles Spurgeon, he started preaching when he was 19 and he preached multiple times a week until, until he basically died. And after about 25 years, uh, one of his assistants and some of the people in his church had, had taken notes and they would you know, transcribe his sermons and send them out to radio broadcast and put them in newspapers and stuff like that. And they realized after like 25 years of his ministry that someone had given their life to Jesus every week under his ministry. And when they asked him, they came to him and they were like, hey, what's the secret sauce? Like, what do you do to like see that kind of move of God happen? And he just said, I, God said that he wants to save people, so I do my part, and I just expect God to do the rest. And I think for so many of us, we've swapped out the reality that God offers for what's just easy and right in front of us to where our sanctified imagination doesn't believe that God can actually do amazing things in our lives. And, our, and, and a, good, a good litmus test of that is like, what does your prayer life look like? Like, what are you bold enough to ask God for? And how often are you entering your presence and talking to him? Because that's what Jesus wants for us, is we're seeking to become known, whole, that we're filling ourselves with him, his word, his spirit, his grace, and his love, that we aren't just living this face value, shallow life, but we're meeting in God's presence where our hearts are exposed to him. And he's burning out the dross, and, and he's refining us into his image. We're doing the hard work of not filling our minds with lies, but we're, we're believing the reality as he sets it. And so, so as we kind of close today, uh, we're going we're gonna to worship, uh, close out and worship in just a moment. But as we close today, I want to kind of give us an action step. Um, I did it this week, and it's brutal, okay? But I'm just going to ask you to join me in this. I'm going to do it with us. Uh, 
if you're thinking about that pie chart, okay, and that's not to bring shame or like workspace. Like I said, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning, okay? So let's join God in his work drawing near to him. If you're thinking about that pie chart of your life, is there an appetite or a desire that's dominating your life? Like, like a thing, like what captures when you find yourselves in a situation, maybe a few minutes throughout the day where your mind can wander, like where's your mind going to? Maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's TV, Snapchat. Maybe you find yourself, like when you're stressed out, you, you eat your emotions away. Man, maybe it's football, definitely not soccer. It was on international break this weekend, so I'm good. But I'm going to ask you, like, what, what's that desire or appetite dominating your life that's, that's having you swap out the things of Jesus for empty religious activity, for idolatry, for, a, for delusion? Like, what does it say? And then I'm going to ask you to fast from it for minimum two weeks. Minimum two weeks. Like, wh- like what's the first thing that you want to do when you wake up in the morning? Maybe it's check your email and you're a workaholic. Like maybe it's, maybe it's looking at Instagram to see how many likes you have from that post you made last night. Maybe it's checking ESPN to see how your fantasy football's doing. Right, whatever that thing is, fast from it for minimum two weeks, four is ideal. Fast from it for them because if we believe everything we've talked about today, everything we read in the Bible, everything we believe Paul has been confronting in his letter to the Colossians, everything that Jesus did and will do and wants to do in our lives, how differently would that change the way we expect God to work in our lives if we replace those dominating appetites in our lives for God instead of feeding ourselves on things like Paul said that perish in this life. We feast on Jesus. How can God show up in your life as you change your expectations of how he can show up in your lives. Maybe it's a renewed prayer life. Maybe it's a renewed awe for his word. Maybe it's renewed concern for your neighbor's well-being physically, spiritually, and emotionally. So what desire and appetite do we need to replace with the desire for God? Let, let me close out today with just a, we're just gonna close out with a minute of silence and just ask God, what are you, what are you telling us? Maybe he'll bring that, that thing to your heart. And then I'm just going to close out with a prayer of commitment, pray over us as a people, and then we're going to close out worshiping Jesus today. Holy Spirit, as you bring things to our mind and our heart. Jesus said that that when he sends us, you would come and you would convict us consenting sin, righteousness, and judgment. So Holy Spirit, if there's sin that we need to confess of and repent, show us right now. If there's righteousness that we need to live into, that we need to swap and change in our lives so that we can walk in that righteousness that's made possible because of what Jesus has done, help us. And if there's judgment, if there are things that we're feeling 
the heaviness, the weight, the reality of God's hatred for sin, hatred for those things that are tearing us away from a, a, a life centered on Jesus. Help us remember that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But what you're calling us into is a life that's marked by life. That as we feed ourselves, our souls, our, our desires, our minds on Jesus, his goodness, his gospel, his good news, that we can walk in a manner worthy of him. And so whatever, whatever came to mind for us in the room today, all of us sitting here, different seasons of life, different stages of life, totally different human beings that we've made. Holy Spirit, you've brought things to our minds and our hearts. I pray for all of us that we, that we commit ourselves right now to minimum two weeks as a group of people, as a group of people that have been called by your name, as a family of believers here in Western North Carolina, as, as you've called those things to our mind, as we commit ourselves and devote ourselves to give those things up so that we can replace it with Jesus. Be with us, give us life. Let us feel your grace and your love and your peace as we go throughout that. And help us to remember who you are and what you've done. That we are sons and daughters and we can stand boldly before your throne because of what Jesus has done for us. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.